If you would please take your Bible and turn to the book of Luke, which is in the last fourth of your Bible. The New Testament begins with four what we call gospel accounts, and we're looking at the the gospel account of Luke. We've been preaching through this book on Sunday mornings. Uh, Jesus lived about 2,000 years ago, and some of his closest followers wrote accounts of who he was and what he did and what he taught The fact that he uh, died and was buried and rose again, came back to life. And over the next several decades, these followers wrote accounts of what he had said, what he had done while he was living. And we believe that those accounts, which we call the Gospels because they tell the true story of the Gospel, the good news of Christ, we believe that these accounts were inspired by God. That means that God breathed out the words of the Bible, that God carried along, that the Holy Spirit carried along these human authors like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, so that what they were saying was actually, were actually the words of God. Using the personalities and the experiences, the life experiences of these uh, gospel authors, But what we have when we open the Bible is the very Word of God. And so that's why we take our time talking about the Word of God. That's why we think that this is the most important way you could possibly spend your time today. This is why we think that the Bible is the most important gift, the most important book in the world. And so we invite you to listen along as I'll be reading today from Luke 11, verses 14 through 36. A rather long, for our purposes, uh, passage. Uh, but uh, we pray that the Lord will make this message clear for you and that it will encourage your faith and help you in your fight against your own sin and your uh, suffering and in your understanding of who Jesus is. This past February during the Super Bowl, one of the more memorable ads, at least in my mind and my experience, was one called Don't Miss Out. And the idea was that you don't want to be like a guy named Larry And what you saw was Larry being transported from one historical moment to the next. And so he was there uh, historically present for things like the invention of the wheel. And when he would see the wheel, he'd be like, nah, it's not that great. And then uh, perhaps you would see him sitting there with Thomas Edison. And he would say, Edison, this is a miss, as he turns on the first light bulb. And then you see him at the Continental Congress in Philadelphia and saying things like, what? You're going to let even the the crazy people vote? Like, how are you thinking it's a good idea not to have a king? And so then he tries to to tear up, you know, these important historical documents. But what you see was proof that the experiments would work, but he wasn't buying it. He was seeing Edison turn on a light bulb and say, no, no, it's not going to work. It's just not going to cut it. He couldn't quite throw himself behind these experiments. So this guy, Larry, we would say, had a stubborn heart. He wasn't willing to believe what was right in front of his eyes. We, too, as humans, have stubborn hearts. Have you ever noticed that about yourself? Maybe about someone else you love. They're the ones with the really stubborn heart, but you can't see it in your own life. We see God work faithfully in the past, but when the next wave upon wave of suffering comes, you think that God isn't being kind to you. You think that God uh, is not good and you doubt His goodness or His power to help. We embrace His forgiveness for our past sins, but when temptation comes again, we fall right back into the same cesspool, joyfully drinking the poison that is killing us and that diminishes our joy in Christ and doles our souls and makes the joys of knowing Christ seem empty when actually it's the other way around, when He is the most satisfying. 
In our passage today, we see people wanting signs, wanting proof that Jesus really is who he says he is. And really, we should say wanting more signs because he's already given them a lot and he's going to give them another one in this passage itself. Wanting to show that Jesus is the expected one. But he had just given them a sign. We're going to read this passage in just a moment, uh, a portion of it. We're going to take it portions at a time. He's given, as we're going to see in just a second, he's given a man who was mute the ability to speak. Isn't that enough sign? Enough of a sign that Jesus truly is the Son of God, that Jesus truly is the Messiah. He's the one who's come to undo the evil and to, to, to conquer sin, to reverse the curse. We should look at what this passage lays out before us and say, yeah, that's enough to, to convince me that Jesus truly is God. And the point of this long and somewhat difficult passage to understand is that Jesus has all authority over evil. There's no one else like him. There is no one else who has that kind of authority. Jesus has all authority over evil. And the simple response that Luke wants you to have when you hear that truth is to align yourself with Christ. To turn away from all other false imposters who would claim to have some semblance of authority. They say, truly, Jesus is unique. Truly, He is not just a wise teacher. He's not just a miracle worker on occasion. He is God Himself. So throw yourself in with Him. Eliminate all the other options and say, I'm going to follow Jesus all the way to the end. Now again, we're going to read this passage in just a second here, but I want to remind us of what Luke is about, what Luke is doing. Luke is writing to a man named Theophilus. Kind of an unusual name, but Theophilus uh, was probably, it seems, a new Christian who was probably asking, what does it look like to follow Jesus? Why should I do this? Who really was Jesus? And Luke's trying to lay out what he calls an orderly account of what Jesus has accomplished And so he wrote this passage so that Theophilus would be clear on Jesus' authority, that Jesus is infinitely more powerful than Satan and his henchmen. He is diametrically opposed to Satan. There is good and there is evil, and they do not ever come into contact with one another, and there's no middle ground in between. And so what Luke was trying to do is to convince Theophilus to follow Jesus with his whole life, to turn away from evil, to throw himself headlong into Jesus' side, and to call others to do the same. So with that in mind, let me read verses 14 and following of Luke 11. Now he, Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, hmm... He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven, as if he hadn't just given them one. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. 
But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. We'll read the rest of our passage later on, but here in these first verses we are called to recognize Jesus' authority. Acknowledge that Jesus has all authority over all evil. People are wanting to see signs that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, look, I just gave you one, Jesus would say. I just cast out a demon that was keeping a man mute for his, for as far as we know, his whole life, or at least a substantial portion of his life. So recognize that his authority is indisputable in verses 14 through 16. It's indisputable. There are three responses in verses 14, 15, and 16. One in each verse. In verse 14, the response is people marveled. People maybe put their hands over their mouths and said, I've never seen anything like this before. Who is this guy? That's one response. That's the best of these three responses. The next response is in verse 15. And this is a skeptical response of, there's no way he has the power to do that himself. He's doing that because he's aligning himself with Satan. He's using the very power of Satan to defeat Satan. Doesn't make a lot of sense, which we're going to come back to in just a second. And then the third response is verse 16, which is where people are like, that was cool. Do something else now. Give us another sign. Really impress us this time. Like That was good and all, but we've got to go to the next level here. These are the three responses, but no matter which one of those camps you're in, all of these people were recognizing that Jesus at least had some authority. His authority was indisputable. So while some are not as impressed as others, at least people were recognizing he is casting out demons. Like there is some power at work here. So you can either marvel and say, this is amazing, clearly this is a work of God, or you can say, it's not a work of God, this is a work of the evil one. There's no, that's the only way you'd have the power to accomplish what he's accomplishing. But we need to recognize that Jesus' authority is from God, not from Satan. Verse 17, Jesus knew their thoughts. This is far from the first time in the book of Luke where people aren't even saying something out loud and Jesus knows what's going on. How in the world does he do that? Because the Holy Spirit is telling him what people are thinking around him. This is happening throughout his life, and Luke records this multiple times. So he knows their thoughts, he's reading their minds, in other words, and he says, every kingdom divided itself is laid waste in a divided household falls. Does that sound familiar to you? Maybe you're an Abraham Lincoln buff, and you remember that in 1858 he quoted this verse to talk about the state of America at that point in 1858. Well, Jesus is saying this to make the point that it makes zero sense for Satan to cast out Satan. Why would Satan want to defeat his own kingdom? There's no way this makes any sense at all. And so Jesus is giving a truism, telling them to think about this sanely. Like, set aside your dumb options that you're trying to generate on the spot here because you don't know what else to do with what Jesus is doing. 
If Satan is divided against himself, his kingdom's going to be destroyed. He's going to hurt himself. So these people are saying, I have seen demons cast out before. How did that happen? Like the Pharisees, who from one of the other passages in the Gospels is probably his, his main audience here, their disciples, maybe even other Pharisees, have cast out demons before. So Jesus is asking, where did they get their authority from? Surely they're not going to tell you that they were doing this on the authority of Satan. So if your own people aren't using that kind of authority, why would you assume that I, Jesus, am using that kind of authority? He says, let them be your judges at the end of verse 19. In other words, let them tell you where they got their authority and then go off of their answer. But it's really only one or the other. If Jesus can cast out demons, he's doing it on his authority or on the authority of the evil one. And Jesus is saying, if it's by the finger of God, like, it doesn't take much power of God's to do this. That's, that's one truth we need to take away from that. If it's by the power of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Then we are at a super important moment in human history, in other words. And the only other place in the Bible where we hear about the finger of God fighting against evil is in the book of Exodus, where you have Moses doing one sign to prove the power of God to Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh's magicians are trying to do the same signs. And at one point, the the magicians kind of gave up and were like, we can't do this because this is the finger of God. They were recognizing that God was at work in their midst there. And Jesus is saying the same truth here. This is the power of God in your life. So don't make light of it. Submit to it. Don't ignore what God is doing Throw yourself onto the side of Christ, recognizing that his kingdom has come upon you, which is simply a way of saying that God is restoring the order that was thrown off at the fall. So what happened at the fall? All of a sudden, there's conflict between good and evil, between God and the evil one, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, to use biblical terminology there, theological terminology as well. And so this is all taking, this passage is taking us back to Genesis 3.15. And what was the promise that God made in Genesis 3.15? Was it that you're going to have forgiveness of sins? Not yet. That's not the promise in Genesis 3.15. The promise is God's going to crush the evil one. That's what's going to happen. And that's what Jesus is saying is happening here. If the kingdom of God is in effect now, the crushing has begun. 
And so you don't have to question anymore whose authority is at work. It is clearly the authority, the authority is from God. And so verse 20 is Jesus just saying, if this is from God, you need to sit up and pay attention. This is not anything to mess around with. God's kingdom is here. Verses 21 through 23 simply make the point that Jesus' authority is far greater than Satan's. We could get thrown off by some of the details in this little parable, we could call it, in verses 21 to 23. But the idea is this. Satan's hands are bound when Jesus is around. He has no authority to do anything when Jesus is around. Because because Satan thinks that he's strong, and it appears that he's strong, and he can do lots of really bad things. But then Jesus comes, and he's the stronger one that this little parable tells us about. So the strong man in verse 21 is Satan. And he's doing whatever he wants. He's fully armed. He's guarding his own castle. And those people who are under his control, called his goods, he's, he's got them right where he wants them. Satan feels really good about himself until Jesus comes and ties them up. So to use like in a football analogy, you might say, wow, that offensive line is really good until they go up against like the Alabama defensive line. And then they're not as good as they once seemed like they were. And so the stronger one, then he attacks him and overcomes him. And he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. What this is, is a beautiful analogy of Jesus coming and taking away captives, setting captives, spiritual captives free. People who were once bound to evil, now recognizing that Christ is the true light and life. And so they give themselves to Him because Christ has set them free. And so Jesus comes, takes away His armor in which He trusted and divides His spoil. He gives spiritual light and life to all those who once were bound by Satan. Again, the point of this passage is simply that the authority that Jesus has is far greater than the authority that Satan has. Verse 23 is another basically truism in a spiritual sense that no one is neutral. There's no one who's just kind of sitting on the fence. If you think you're sitting on the fence or even you would say you're sitting on the fence, that means you're on the side of evil. But if you're on God's side, you want nothing to do with the fence because you're fighting against iniquity and the evil one himself. So his authority is indisputable. His authority is from God. His authority is far greater than Satan's. We've seen all of these truths here in verses 14 through 26. The last point we need to see here in verses 24 through 26 is that his authority is desperately needed. Because what Jesus does now is explains that when this unclean spirit goes out of someone, now it's like you have like this empty house. And this is kind of the picture he uses. And that house is sitting there empty. And it gets all cleaned and swept up and it looks beautiful on the inside but it's just sitting there empty. And so that that unclean spirit that has just been cast out, he's floating around, we guess. We don't know a lot about demons. We know very little. But it appears from this passage that they like to be busy. They like to be occupied and to be occupying, I suppose. And so we kind of pick up these little snippets of what demons are like and what they're trying to do. But what Jesus basically says is, you have this demon who leaves this person The demon's cast out, but then that person refuses to put their faith in Christ, and so they're still vulnerable. And this demon comes back, and this time he brings all his pals, and they inhabit that person, 
and that person's way worse than he was before. Here's the idea. If you don't put your hope in God, you are open to attack, basically. That's the idea here. That there is good and there is evil. And if you are resisting God, you are laying yourself out open and vulnerable. So when the person is not submitted to Christ, it simply... Let me just boil this down this way. Verses 24 through 26 is expanding on the verses of 20, on, on verse 23, the truth of verse 23, I should say. Making one point, no one's neutral. You're not just sitting in the middle. You're not just sitting on the fence. All who are not submitted to Christ are vulnerable to spiritual opposition. So throw yourself fully in with Christ. His authority is desperately needed. So recognize Jesus' authority in verses 14 through 26 And then respond to Jesus' authority in verses 27 through 36. Follow along as I read this this portion here. Listen to how these different people respond to Jesus' authority. As he said these things about demons, about Satan, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here." The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, but when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no dark part. It will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Respond to Jesus' authority. Respond rightly to Jesus' authority. And that means to let the Word of God change your life. Verses 27 and 28, there's this woman sitting in the crowd watching what Jesus is doing, hearing the amazing wisdom of Jesus' ministry. And her instinct is to say, wow, your mother... Mary must be a super awesome person for you to have this kind of wisdom. And Jesus doesn't exactly dispute that. He just wants to go a step further. Yes, it is wonderful to have a godly lineage, he might say. But what's even more important is that you respond to God's word. And that's what he's essentially calling us to do is let God's word change your life. Because somebody could say, wow, if you're related to Jesus, you're really special. And Jesus would say, no, if you respond to my word, you're really blessed. The person who submits to Jesus through Scripture, through obedience, who doesn't coddle your sin, doesn't make excuses for yourself, this person is truly blessed because you hear the word of God and you do it. As James would say, it's, we need to be hearers of the word, yes, but doers of the word as well. 
So let God's Word change your life in verses 27 to 28. And then in verses 29 through 32, repent before the time of judgment. Remember back in verse 16, there were these people who were saying, give us another sign. Well, here Jesus is looping back to that idea. Okay, this is the first time he's come back to that. He kind of ignored that for a time. And now he's coming back to this idea of we want a sign, give us something good, make it a juicy one this time. And Jesus says, you're going to get a sign, but it's not going to be what you think it's going to be. Those seeking a sign prove this group of people around here, this generation, to be an evil generation. You're going to get a sign, but it's going to be the sign of Jonah. What was the sign of Jonah? In this particular passage, what he seems to be pointing out is that Jonah went to Nineveh to preach judgment. You're going to get a message that the wrath of God is going to come on you if you do not repent and believe the gospel. That's the sign of Jonah. Jonah goes to Nineveh, to the most wicked people in the world, and says, repent right now before it's too late. And the people did repent and believe before it was too late, and God brought new life to those people. Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, and the Son of Man is a sign to this generation. He's preaching judgment to them. And then now he's going to talk about how other people have responded to the truth that they were given, to the light that they received. And he gives two examples. He gives this one about Jonah, which he's going to come back to in a second, but he starts with one about this person called the Queen of Sheba. Where in the world is this talked about in the Bible? Or the Queen of the South here, but we know this is referring to the Queen of Sheba, which is in 1 Kings chapter 10. And what we have in that context is the son of David, Solomon, is known worldwide for having amazing wisdom. And there's this queen from probably Ethiopia, historians assume this is what we're talking about here, who uh, hears about Solomon and his wisdom and is like, there is no way there's someone that wise. So I'm going to go and check it out myself. And so she goes 1,500 miles before the wheel was invented, perhaps, (laughs) before at least automobiles, okay? So this was a very long journey just to make the point that there's no way somebody has this kind of wisdom. And in 1 Kings 10, 10, what you find out is that when she asked Solomon all these hard questions that she could come up with, she was blown away by his answers. And it tells us beautifully in 1 Kings 10 that she put her hand over her mouth, like her breath was no longer in her. It was almost like she was hyperventilating, in other words, because she was so impressed by what she had heard. She heard amazing wisdom from Solomon. What's Jesus saying here? Solomon's wisdom was good. My wisdom is better. Now he's going to give a second story. You have Jonah going to the most wicked people in the world, the Ninevites. He preaches the truth to them, and they respond. You would not have expected that from the most wicked people in the world. How did they respond? They fell on their faces. They covered themselves in sackcloth and ashes in Jonah chapter 2 and 3. Jonah didn't really like it, but they did respond the way that God said that they would. They heard the truth preach. They repented. And Jesus is saying, I'm a better preacher than Jonah. I'm telling the truth more than Jonah does, more than Jonah did. You're rejecting the greatest preacher. So by rejecting Jesus' wisdom, you're being utterly foolish because 
even the Queen of Sheba responded to the, to the wisdom of Solomon and was very impressed by it. And you're not impressed by the wisdom of Jesus. The wicked people of Nineveh responded to the message of Jonah. And your peop- you are proving yourselves to be more wicked than the people of Nineveh. You're rejecting the greatest preacher. You're rejecting the greatest wisdom of all time. What he's calling them to do is to repent before it's too late. And so he talks about the judgment coming and basically that the queen of Sheba is going to say, yeah, your guilty is charged because you ignored the truth. And Jonah, the, the people of Nineveh are going to stand up and they're going to say, your guilty is charged because you have rejected this, this preaching from Christ. So when you hear the word of judgment, your response is to repent. And perhaps you don't even know what that means. And so let me just kind of talk you through that for a moment here. Repentance basically means a change of mind. You're turning your back on your old, wicked ways of rebellion against God and recognizing that you desperately need forgiveness and that only Jesus can possibly provide the forgiveness that you need because only Jesus hasn't sinned. So he's the only one who can actually grant you that forgiveness. He's the only one who can die in your place and have it mean something. I could die in your place, but it means nothing because I'm just as sinful as you are. But Jesus never sinned in thought, in word, in deed, in attitude, in any way. And so he is qualified to die for you, to take the punishment that you deserve. And so when you repent and you turn from your sin and you say, Jesus, I need the forgiveness that only you can offer, he gives you joyfully new life. But what this passage is pointing out to us is you need someone more than just a wise teacher. Solomon's great and all, but he can't forgive you. Jonah's a good preacher and all, but all he's doing is pointing you to the one who can truly forgive you. So if you've never done that, you've never acknowledged that the other wise teachers, the other good preachers are all still marred, fallen, sinful people, and you have not put your hope in Christ, we would urge you to do that today. And I would love to talk to you after the service if you have any questions about that. And probably the person sitting right next to you would love to talk to you about that as well. If not, they can point you towards somebody else as well. Let God's word change your life. Repent before the time of judgment. And verses 33 through 36 will simply summarize and then draw some, some applications for our lives here. The idea here in verses 33 through 36 is you've heard the truth and now respond to it. Don't hide, don't reject, don't minimize what has been revealed to you. Respond rightly to it. Jesus has not hid the truth from you. He's set it up so that it's brightly shining into your heart. And so now don't let the truth that has been revealed to you be squelched. Respond rightly to the bright light of the Word of God. That's what verses 33 through 36 are calling you to do. So the main idea in this passage, verses Uh, 14 through 36, is that Jesus has all authority over Satan and over demons. A related truth to this is what Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 6, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, that the warfare that we are engaged in as Christians is not a game of chess, it's not a game of, you know, a thumb war, like something super minor that's not important. We're dealing with something super important there's only one way you can win this battle, and that is by aligning yourself with Christ. So what we need to remember is that we need to fight spiritual problems with spiritual solutions. Put our hope in the Word of God to change lives, not in politicians, not in legislation, 
We put our hope in Christ, in His ability to change our lives from the inside out. Of course, that doesn't mean we don't get involved in seeking to make this a better, uh, safer world, things along those lines. We're not going to get down on rabbit trails, but just realizing that our deepest problems are spiritual problems, and they're addressed by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God as we put our hope in God. One way to make war against the evil one and against his allies is to join a healthy church and to be baptized first if you need to be. This is how you make war. This is how you protect yourself against the darts of the evil one. This is one way you do that. And so you be, you, let me take those in reverse order. I said you should join a healthy church and you should be baptized. So let's start with being baptized. We'll joyfully welcome you to our church uh, as a member if you have been baptized as someone who has already put their faith in Christ. So I mentioned this at the beginning of the service. We are baptized to demonstrate our allegiance with Jesus. You know, we, we pledge allegiance to the flag. That's all fine and good and all. But how do you show that you are allied with Christ, that he is the one that you're going to worship? You do that by being baptized. You do that after you've already confessed that, that, that Christ is the only source of salvation. There is no other way. And so once you've been baptized, and I would assume most of us Christians have been, uh, once you've been baptized, then you align yourself with other people who have been baptized and who have said, you know what, Jesus is the only source of truth, so I'm going to throw my lot in with him completely, and we're going to stand together fighting against evil, seeking to wield the sword of the word of God against evil, and we do that by evangelism, by telling people the truth, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And we are more effective doing that together in a culture of evangelism than just doing that in one-off conversations, though we should do that as well as part of this culture. And so we join a healthy church as a means of making war against the evil one so that we have other people protecting us while we help protect them as well. Every quarterback is going to tell you it's better to have five offensive linemen than three. And so we are stronger together than we are as individuals. So join a healthy church, a place where the gospel is preached, a place where you have leaders who are seeking to lead by example and through the word of God, not through their own authority, who don't bind your conscience on something that the Bible doesn't bind your conscience on. And then while you're at church, like right now, here are several ways you can you can make war against the evil one. You can throw your lot in with Christ. One is you engage your mind. And sometimes this is going to mean you leave your phone in the car or at home altogether. Sometimes it can mean you turn it to do not disturb. You uh, engage your mind, though. Take notes. Whatever it will help, whatever will work to help you follow along well. Pray for spiritual progress for each person. You can look around the room while you're, while you're listening and be praying that the Word of God would be sinking into the hearts of each person around you and that the evil one would be restrained, that the Holy Spirit would give new life to sinners. While you're at church, you can sing all the songs, even the ones you don't really like because they were written 300 years ago or you don't really like because they were written five years ago. I don't care which end of the spectrum it's on. Sing all the songs to make the evil one see that you are aligned with Christ, not with a certain generation of Christians. That you're going to sing the truth because it's good for you and it's good for the person behind you and it's good for the person in front of you. It's good for the children who don't know how to read yet so they can't see the words but they can hear them out of your mouth and say, wow, that person really believes what they're singing. So sing all the songs. Examine your heart. Ask yourself, how does this truth 
change my life, not, oh yeah, come on, preach better. That person next to me needs this sermon right now. Examine your own heart. And then move toward other people. There are people in this room who need to have a good conversation today. Maybe a good conversation about their suffering or their sin. So move toward them. Sometimes you might be surprised who those people might be. So engage in war against the evil one by linking arms with Christ and saying that He is the true source of power. He is the only one with true authority. You can do that while you're at church. You can also do that at home. And one way I would encourage you to do that is by reading an unusual book written probably about 50 or 60 or so years ago called The Screwtape Letters. And it's a book written by a guy named C.S. Lewis who gets you into the mind of a demon and what it would look like to fight against Christ. And in reading a book like that, it actually makes you realize areas in which you're vulnerable. And one of my favorite letters in that one, because I hate cell phones, is the one where he talks about cell phones without actually naming them. I'm being somewhat hyperbolic by saying what I just said, but I do think that C.S. Lewis was onto something when he talked about letting someone just sit there and stare off into the nothingness of life and letting his soul just kind of get cold over time. You don't have to do anything, he tells his disciple demon, to do against that person because he's going to ruin himself by just looking off into the nothingness of the Twitterverse. Just let him do it by himself. So read the book, The Screwtape Letters. Read good books to your children because you are teaching them the truth when you do that. And you're fighting the lies that they're hearing through YouTube or any other means. And listen to good songs and albums yourself. So you fight the lies with the truth. So Michael Lasigno has been in the hospital these last uh, several days. About the week, week and a half leading up to it, I sent him a song every single evening. So that if he was laying there, because I know he was nervous about it. I know he was fearful about this procedure. He's especially fearful about having to go into like a nursing home for a while just because of some past experiences in his family. And so this has been keeping him up at night. So I've wanted to send him just one more dose of truth every single night so that he can sit there and listen to He Will Hold Me Fast or See the Destined Day Arise or whatever other song I sent him. And in doing so, then the night before his surgery, I sent him a whole album. I said, you know, some nights you need a little more truth than other nights. So here, listen to 10 songs instead of one. But here's the reality. We need the truth to counteract the lies. So let it sink into your heart, whether it be by reading the Bible, which I highly encourage you to do, or by listening to the Bible through songs that sing the truth to you. These are ways that we acknowledge that Jesus has all authority. And these are ways that we link arms with Him and with other people who link arms with Him, which is what we call a healthy church. And we encourage you to side with other Christians who take what God says seriously. The end of the Super Bowl ad I was telling you about was this guy, Larry, sitting in an office hearing a sales pitch for a safe and easy way to get into crypto. And his response is, nah, I don't think so. And I'm never wrong about this stuff. Never. Maybe the verdict is still out on crypto. I hope it is because I don't know anything about it. (laughs) But the verdict is not still out about Jesus. You have a decision to make that is far more important about whether to throw your lot in with crypto and what you decide to do with the truth about Jesus, that He is truly God and is the only one who can forgive your sins, is the most important decision you will ever make 
So throw your lot in with Christ. Align yourself with Him. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we stand in awe at Your power. We stand in awe at the fact that You would joyfully reveal Yourself to us as sinners. And You've done that even in this passage, this long, at times difficult passage, simply making the point that the authority that Jesus has is so much greater than the evil one. So we bow before You, we give thanks to You, and we pray for every one of us here that we would throw ourselves in with Christ, refusing to believe the lies of the evil one. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.